Amen. Thanks, Dave. All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, as always, would encourage you to follow along in a blue pew Bible. 1 Timothy 6, you can find on page 993. And this morning, on the first Sunday of June, we begin the final chapter in this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Lord willing, we will finish this chapter and this series that we began in January on the last Sunday in June. And what we have been seeing since the beginning of chapter 5 are this, um, these kind of series of applications, these series of exhortations that Paul is giving Timothy to pass along to the church. And he's addressing all different groups of people within the church that is located in Ephesus. And what we've said is that he's basically going through some house rules. That the house rules of the local church that we are to be defined by and follow. And now in these first two verses of chapter 6, and we're just covering two verses, Paul's going to address a group that he has not addressed up to this point. And these two verses contain a multitude of implications that we will, I think, just barely scratch the surface of this morning for the church and for Christians today. So 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. All right, well, as we see, Paul is directly addressing this group uh, that the ESV translates as bondservants. Um, other translations that you might have read says slaves. Because he is talking to members of his church, members of the church of Ephesus, who are, by first century Roman standards, considered owned property by other people. And this is not the only book of the Bible where slaves are addressed by Paul and others. Um, over the years, as we've preached through different books of the Bible, I've addressed this very topic uh, as we went through Galatians and First Peter and Exodus and Ephesians. Then it's in other letters that we haven't preached through yet, like Titus and Colossians. And so an immediate question often arises when these verses are read that I think and often do just want to deal with straight away. Why does Paul not call for the immediate and even agitated dismantling and dissolution of the Roman system of slavery? Why is that not what he's doing here? Do these verses and other passages like it in the Bible that I mentioned, do they actually support the institution of slavery? Is that what's happening here? And if that is indeed what is happening, how can we trust anything that the Bible says? It's a good question. It's a common question that maybe you have had, that maybe you currently have, that maybe someday you will have or your children will have. So I want to answer that, again, straight out. Um, and say it as clearly as I can, but it is a little bit nuanced, okay? Neither Paul nor the Bible as a whole ever supports the system of slavery. Nor, hear me closely, does he call for its immediate dissolution here in the first century. But he seeks to dismantle and undermine systems of oppression in society from the inside out. 
He lays a groundwork to dismantle and undermine systems of oppression in society from the inside out. And so we're going to be covering that in our passage this morning. But I want to take the time, because I think uh, just in, in our own cultural moment, I think this is a question that's always relevant for us. Because this passage addresses a bigger question for the church today. How should the church, how should Christians as a whole, seek to engage with and maybe even seek to change cultural institutions it exists within? No matter wherever the church is located and whenever it's located, it has to answer this question. How should we engage the culture? Because you can't separate the church from the culture. We are very much intertwined with one another. So how should Christians in the church engage with the culture? What is the right way for that to happen? And uh, let, let me give you an example of how this question often comes out. Um, this, this is exemplified by an example that author and college professor Karen Swallow Pryor gave in her book called Cultural Engagement. And she's recounting an interaction she had with a graduate student one day after class. Uh, the student came up to her and said, Professor, I've been struggling with Starbucks recently. She wasn't expecting that. And the student went on and said, their stances on many issues go against my Christian convictions. To the point where I'm wrestling with frequenting their stores. How should I think about this? And it made Pryor think that one's answer to that question hints at a far bigger question of what is the appropriate stance Christians ought to have towards the culture they exist within. So in her book, she didn't actually tell me what she told the student. She didn't say in the book what she told the student. But she said, here are five possibilities somebody could come up with. So think about this with me. I will have these on the screen. Five ways that this person could have interacted. Number one, boycott. We should boycott all companies that have agendas that oppose Christian values. By doing so, we can put pressure on them to change their policies and agendas. That's one. Number two, limitation. Out of principle, we should at least try to limit our interaction with, with and cooperation with non-Christian companies. Realistically, this might not actually pressure them to change their policies. But at least we will stand on principle and avoid being corrupted by consumerism and secular values. Limitation. Number three, outreach. We can continue to visit Starbucks so that we can build relationships with the baristas and other patrons in order to make disciples rather than just always trying to exert pressure on them. Outreach. Number four, gratitude. We can thank God for the coffee they make. He gave us the raw materials, coffee, beans, cows for milk, and made these people in his own image with the ingenuity and creativeness to make wonderful coffee and create jobs for others. Okay, number five, and the last one, transformation. Through reflecting on how the gospel shapes how believers participate in all cultural activities, we should encourage Christian entrepreneurs to open coffee shops and other businesses that will lead to human flourishing. So, there's a list that, again, Karen Swall Pryor puts out. That's five ways you can maybe think about engaging with the culture with a specific example. Um, some of you are maybe sitting there, and you look at one of those and go, this is actually a no-brainer. It's this one. And everybody else should have, think it's this one. And if you don't think other people are also saying this one, you think you have a problem. Others say, yeah, this is tough. I can see it being this or this. Definitely not that. And would struggle if other people chose that. 
And then there are still others of us in this room that hear about this and say, this whole exercise is making me anxious, and I don't like it, and I don't know. And here's the thing. I'm not going to tell you which is right, because I don't think there's one right answer for every situation. We need wisdom. We need discernment, case by case, situation by situation, and understand that even true believers might differ with us. And so I share that all to say this as we head into this passage. We're going to see how Paul engages the culture. It's the first time in 1 Timothy, since we've been walking through since January, that he's now engaging the culture. It's all been internal about the church, and now he's culture-facing, at least in one context, in this worldly system of ancient Roman slavery. And while this morning's passage is not going to provide a crystal clear answer for every question we have on how to engage culture today, I think it's going to give us a framework on how to think about it. I'll put it this way. Rather than me caring so much about what of those five you might choose, I care more about how did you get there? How did you think about that? What led you to that place? And so here's how we're going to see Paul approach a cultural institution, and it starts with number one, and it's a big number one, and that number one is going to overshadow number two and number three. Number one, the highest priority for Paul is the glory of God and the gospel. The highest priority for him in any engagement is the glory of God and the gospel. Okay, so let's talk about the Roman institution of slavery. Uh, in the uh, empire during this time, it is estimated that one-third, one out of every three people in the population were considered in the slave class. That is probably about 50 to 60 million people total. And it was, as you might expect, the lowest rung in society. They were humans by, in, in, in the government's eyes, owned by other humans. We can't gloss over that. It's why when Paul addresses them, he affirms they are under a yoke to the members of the Ephesian church who are under a yoke. A yoke was a heavy beam, a heavy wooden beam put onto an ox by its owner. So Paul uses that language to describe the heavy burden of being under the control of and under the authority of someone else. They're under a yoke. yoke. But... It was also distinctly different from the chattel, lifelong slavery based upon the color of one's skin that describes the history of our country in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. And there are, uh, so it is slavery, and we can't gloss over it, but it is distinctly different from the way that we often, or the way you might often think about slavery when you first hear the word. Um, In the first century, there there were several reasons why someone would enter the slave class. Um, First is that they were a prisoner of war. Um, Second is that they were a criminal, and their sentence to be carried out was to be working for a family, assigned to a family to be their slave as their sentence. Um, Others that were in debt, and in order to pay off a debt of money they did not have, they worked instead. They became a slave. Others were sold by their own family to other families to work, for various reasons. There are those who also entered into the slave class for security. That they decided that based upon their life situation, they would be more secure within a family if they worked for that family. That in some sense, they would be provided for. 
Slaves in the first century could generally account for gaining freedom over time. Uh, by this point, and it just changed in the couple, like, hundred years before, you know, B.C., up until this point in the first century, what we know as the first century, is a process called manumission. Manumission, where somebody could buy their own freedom. Records estimate that over half of the slaves were freed before the age of 30. That they would be able to purchase their own freedom. And slaves held all different kinds of positions within households. So slaves were carpenters, they were teachers, they were physicians within a family. Which is why sometimes it was preferred, it was guaranteed work. To make it more complicated, there was layers of slavery in the first century. Meaning this, some slaves had their own slaves. So, we're, we, we, we've got to walk this tightrope. We can't minimize it. We can't make it seem like it was great to be a slave in the Roman Empire. Because they were not free. They were owned and considered property. It was a yoke. But it was also distinct from the versions of slavery that we often think about. But while we're there, I do think it is worthwhile for us to acknowledge that passages like that one, 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, would be used by and justified by the owners of the slavery we do think of in order to make their slaves feel like this is God's plan for their life. Twisted, misinterpreted, weaponized against people to uh, support the debased version of slavery that was in our country's history. And, and the church in the U.S., bears some responsibility for the guilt and the shame and the propagation of slavery. And with it, the racism that fueled the slavery. And when that slavery was abolished, we know that that transferred into a, a, a Jim Crow and Jim Crow laws that were undergirded by racism, flowing through to systemic injustices that impact people of color to this day, again, fueled by racism. And there are some who twist the Bible to enforce it, and there are many, many others who silently accept it. Might not totally agree with it, but it does not really affect their lives, so they silently accept it when they see it. So, here's the complicated part of our history and of church history. While it's also true that it was Christians who led the way to abolish and dismantle the system of slavery in this country, there are also many professing Christians many pastors who were complicit in it. It's complicated. Um, let me put it this way from um, Phil Riken, who's one of the commentators uh, of the books of First Timothy I've been watching, or sorry, reading. He is the president, I still, I think he's still the president at Wheaton out in the Midwest. He writes this, and it'll be on the screen. Christianity eventually did become the single greatest force in history for the eradication of slavery. But the church of Jesus Christ bears part of the guilt for the sins of slavery in human history. That guilt cannot be ignored. It can only be confessed and forgiven on the basis of the blood Jesus Christ shed on the cross. So before we move on and unpack this passage, I think it's worth us just affirming together that history, both Bible history and church history, are filled with complicated men and women who, in some ways, we can learn from in their godliness. And in other ways, unfortunately, we have to learn from them in their sin. But in every way, to let historical figures point us to their need and our need for Jesus Christ for forgiveness. 
So, with that said, not minimizing it, but seeing the distinctions, I do think we can see the parallels of ancient versions of bond service to current structure of employment. It's not one-to-one. But there are parallels of believers who are working for and within systems for people and institutions, most of which are not Christian organizations. Most of you in this room who work do not work for a Christian institution. So the question comes to you, how do I engage? The churches in the New Testament apparently were filled with slaves. We're filled with members who are in the slave class. That's why in all these letters to different churches, they're being addressed. Just like churches today are filled with employees, filled with people who work. By God's grace, we are not slaves. But we are all virtually under authority of someone or something. We all answer to someone or something in our lives, whether that be the government or institutions that we work for. So how should we live? The question remains, how should we live? And by the way, when we talk about work, it's not just limited to those who receive a paycheck, right? It encompasses the primary vocation you are currently engaged in, whether that is inside the home or outside the home, whether that is paid or whether that is volunteer. So with all that said, and I think that's important to unpack to get to this point, here's the main point of 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. Paul submitted all things and all circumstances to the glory of God and the adornment of the gospel. It was his primary aim in every way. He was very consistent. He submitted all things to the glory of God and the adornment of the gospel. It drove all of his writing and his whole life. And we see this most clearly in the back half of verse 1. If your Bibles are open, look at the back half of verse 1. This phrase drives it all. Let bondservants regard their masters as worthy of all honor. Comma, so that, you see that phrase? He's about to tell you why. So that, priority number one, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Nowhere in scripture will you find Paul endorsing the institution of slavery in the Roman Empire. Never celebrates it. Again, and we don't have time for this this morning, I think lays the groundwork to dismantle it from the inside out. But right now, in this moment, writing this letter to this church, he is addressing those in the Ephesian church who are working as slaves. And he doesn't say, hey guys, now that you're a Christian, you became a believer. Jesus Christ is your king. Don't work anymore. Show disrespect to your master. Undercut him at every turn. This is an unjust system. He does not deserve your work. Slack off where you can to make a point. Get out. Not only does he not say that, he kind of says the direct opposite. Give them honor. Work hard, even in your circumstance of being under a heavy yoke. Here's the important part, though. You are called to do this not for the sake of your master, but for the glory of God. Not for their sake, but for God's sake. In Ephesians chapter 6, which is a letter Paul wrote to the same Ephesian church, it probably was years earlier before 1 Timothy was sent there. It's probably when the church was a little healthier than it is now. He said something very similar, but the wording he chose I think was clearer and more helpful. Ephesians 6, 6 through 8, it's on the screen. Work as you were working for Christ, not by way of eye service, 
as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he be a bondservant or is free. Do you see it? That in your work, in your vocation, when you wake up and you start your day, this first thought is, today I am working to the Lord. That is what makes me a believer. I am working to the Lord. And it's such a vital principle today. Again, there's some passages where it's hard to apply. It's hard to say, how does this impact your real life? We all understand this impacts your real life. To see how your lives and how your work is shaped by the gospel. So to all who are under authority of some sort, whether it is kids or teenagers under parents, whether it's, uh, or under teachers, uh, whether it's workers to employees, athletes to coaches, regardless of your circumstance, even if you don't like the work, even if you feel the injustice of your situation, ensure that you show respect and that you still work hard as if you were working to the Lord. Why? Because if Christians are poor workers, if Christians are poor workers, first and foremost, God and the gospel are dishonored. So Christians ought to have, we have the incentive to have the self-awareness of how we work, how we approach our work and our behavior at work, okay? How you work, how you approach your work and your behavior at work. To have the awareness of how those things reflect well on God and the gospel, or conversely, how it reflects poorly on God and the gospel. So, if I could speak directly to those in the room who this morning would say, right now, at this moment, you are in a situation or a circumstance that you would describe as being somewhere you don't want to be. You are in a situation in a circumstance where you would say, I don't want to be here. Maybe you're at a job you don't want to be at, or you're at a, you are pouring yourself out in your life in a certain circumstance where you don't want to be there. But there's a whole bunch of reasons why you kind of have to be. Perhaps you're at the job you want, doing what you want to do, but you are under a manager or a boss that's just making it really difficult, which makes it all the more frustrating. I am where I want to be, but I'm under a boss or a situation where I just, they're just making it miserable. There's a team you're on. There's an activity you're in, students. But the coach or the leader is just making it so hard to be positive. Well, we are in a country and we are in a time where where you are able, you can and should advocate for yourself. You should be able to speak about the injustice or you have the opportunity to search for a new opportunity. And those things can be talked about, but it's not always reality for some more than others. In the meantime, here's the exhortation to us. If you're in that situation, or if you ever will be, or if you know someone who is, do your work well. It's simple, it's not complicated, but it's hard. Do your work well. Do not fall to the temptation of justifying bad work or sloppy work in spite of your boss, your coworkers or in spite of your company, or, or whoever it is, in order to make them pay for the way that you're treated, I'm going to get them back. By the way, I don't work well. I understand that temptation. But Paul would say, brother, sister, that's not of God. 
Because every time you clock into work, literally or figuratively, every time two things are at stake. Next time you go to work, these two things are at stake. Number one, the name of God. And number two, the teaching of God. The name of God, which Paul uses to summarize all aspects of God's character, his holiness, his grace, his love, his justice, his mercy. We glorify his name by working well. You glorify his name by working well. And then the teaching of God, which Paul uses as a phrase to describe the foundational teaching of the Christian faith or the gospel. The gospel, the good news that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners by dying on the cross, by forgiving those who repent of their sin and draw near to him for forgiveness. And inevitably, how people view both the name of God and the claims of the gospel will be impacted by how you do your work. That's why it matters. Inevitably, the way people view the name of God and the claims of the gospel will be impacted by how you work, how you approach your work, how you behave at work. Uh, looking around the room, I know that some of you have stories of God's grace in your life and where it began was at work with a coworker or with a boss who made Christ known or a teammate that God used in some kind of working relationship to make uh, Christ known to you, to show you Jesus. That's in your story. And it's not just for God and other people, but as we saw in the verse in Ephesians, whatever good you do, the Lord will return back to you. Here's one major way I think the Lord blesses you when you work hard. When you're as a believer, say, I worked hard and I worked respect, with respect, even in tough circumstances, you can go to sleep at night with a clear conscience. Don't literally sleep on the fact. Don't overlook the fact that you can sleep well with a clear conscience when you work hard. That's practical. That means something. The joy of going to sleep saying, I worked hard. Not hoping that your sloppy work would then hurt someone else. Because that always will just hurt you. Trust it to the Lord. I'm doing this for you. I'm working to you for the glory of your name. That is his primary aim. The glory of God and the grandeur of the gospel. And the second now and third points are just that. They are secondary and thirdly, but they are still worth noting. And we'll see them quickly because the text notes them. Number two, the unity of believers. How do we engage with culture? We think about the unity of believers. In verse 2, Paul directly now talks to the slaves in the Ephesian congregation, watch this, who have believing masters. So some commentators think that verse 1 was to slaves with non-believing masters, and now verse 2 is to slaves with believing masters. That's possible, but verse 1 does not explicitly state that like verse 2 does. Nonetheless, it's a very interesting situation in a lot of ways here. Here's one thing it's implying, that in this church, in this house church in Ephesus, it has both masters and slaves in the congregation, members of the same church. Interesting, maybe awkward. And it appears that a report came back to Paul that the bondservants or the slaves who had believing masters were leveraging the fact that they had a believing master to show disrespect, which I take to mean to be sloppy at work. The mentality is, I don't have to work as hard now because my boss is a believer. My master is a believer. And since we are brothers and sisters in Christ, he or she can't treat me harshly. And so now there's lost incentive to work hard. And Paul is saying, no. 
No, back to point one. Our work is not contingent on our circumstances, whether unfavorable or favorable. Believers work hard for the glory of God, first and foremost. So to show disrespect in your work is an affront against God. And then plus, if anything, and this is the name of the sermon, he says, you ought to serve all the better. Serve all the better. It's a good thing, because now your hard work is benefiting a fellow believer. It's a great opportunity for you. Don't waste it. And I think there's something to this that we can uh, affirm and recognize. This mentality can set in where we can justify behavior or work or less than our best around uh, family compared to strangers. It's true in our families, right? Have you heard the phrase, and maybe you felt the phrase, that we often treat our strangers better than our own family? This guard can kind of come down that I should treat my family in some way. You're not showing the respect to your family that you show to strangers. I think that can be applied to this specific context, that in the name of love and familiarity, we don't hold ourselves to as high of a standard. It's not just true with work. I think this is true with moral behavior amongst Christians. When you're around other believers, isn't it true that it, will think like, it won't matter as much how I talk? It won't matter as much how I act or if I drink too much. Uh, we're, we're all believers here. You, you won't be impacted by this. And this standard can start to lower. And it can give ground for sin to rise. So most of us in this room, I would imagine, are believers who do not work for other believers. But some have the blessing of being able to say that. And to see it as a blessing. And then the reverse is true. You might ask the question, why is he not addressing the masters? Like, if, if they're all in the same church here, he has a lot to say to the bond servants. Where, where is he talking to the masters? It's a good question. I don't have the answer why. He does address them in other letters, though. That if you are someone who has a fellow believer who is working for you, who reports to you, who is on your team, see that as a blessing. And see them first as a brother or sister in Christ before they're your employee. This is what Paul tells Philemon in his letter to him. He says, hey, this worker for you, he's no longer a slave. That's the way the government views him, that he's your slave. Philemon, he's your brother in Christ. The world might define him in relation in one way, but your primary relationship with him now is family that would fuel good work. Treat him as a brother, not as a slave. Unity of believers, and that leads to the third and final point. The witness to God's kingdom. How should a Christian engage with the culture and the institutions that are within it? We're back to that question. It's a massive question. As you can see, we're scratching the surface, barely scratching the surface. But here's the foundation. The church pursues its mission internally to grow and mature together to look like Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing here. That's what we do in this church. We pursue a maturing in Christ together. And then we partner with one another for our mission externally. And that is to be a witness to God's kingdom in the world. And this witness brings the assurance of God's kingdom. When we talk about engaging the culture, we talk about lifting high the name of God. When we display the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we talk about imitating Christ himself. We can do this because Christ did it first. This is not on the screen, but it's a familiar passage in Philippians 2. Paul writes, 
about Jesus. He who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's assurance in his cultural engagement was the sure victory of Jesus Christ. That all of history, every single day, is part of history that is headed somewhere, and it's headed towards Christ as King. And it fueled his witness. And with those guiding principles, we too can live with assurance in the truth and contribute towards working towards the reality that God's kingdom is coming and it will come to bear. Indeed, it has already begun in Christ. And that commitment does not dictate what we're going to get from the world. We're going to live out of that conviction. And you know what? Sometimes the culture will be transformed from the inside out by God's grace. And sometimes the church will be persecuted and trampled upon. But in all times, God will be glorified and his victory is sure. So, Paul does not endorse first century Roman slavery. Nor does Paul call for its dissolution but he trusts in the name of God and the work of the gospel to transform it from the inside out. And so I don't know if you're going to boycott or if you're going to limit, if you're going to outreach, if you're going to transform, which of those things that you feel like I should be doing in any situation where I'm engaging, but I want to know, how are you thinking about it? Are you thinking about it through the lens of lifting high the name of God? Are you thinking about the message of the gospel that comes through your actions? And so here's how I want to close. Again, feeling like we're just scratching the surface on a big topic. I want to give us the opportunity to ensure we don't let this pass us by. I want to give us some applications to end on. They're going to be quick, but they're going to be important. Here's what I'm going to ask, and I rarely ask this. I'm going to ask you all to just close your eyes. I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird, all right? Don't get nervous, all right? I just want you to focus on these three applications. I want you to take a message and see how you can apply this to your life. I'm going to give you three words to think about. In the quietness of your own mind, in the focus of your heart, apply this to your life. Number one, work. What comes to mind first when I say work? Let me exhort you to work hard for the glory of God. Work hard to draw unbelievers to the gospel and fulfill your calling. Brothers and sisters, God created you to work and to work in his strength to make his name known. That's number one. Second word, pray. Pray for wisdom in how God will use you to engage the culture you're in. 
Don't let a day go by that you don't pray and think about how your life will reflect well on God in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is hard. This is hard. You need supernatural power and insight and the courage to do it. Prayer helps to mature you in your daily pursuit. And prayer helps to sustain you when it gets hard. That's number two. And finally, number three, rest. Rest in the yoke of Christ. With your eyes still closed, just hear this, that Paul was very intentional with the word he used to address those in hard circumstances, those who were under a yoke, a heavy burden. He used that word to point us to something. For there was one time in the entire Bible where Jesus described his own heart. Jesus described his own heart one time in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. And so with heads bowed and eyes closed, hear these words as we finish. The words of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. All right, open your eyes. Grace Church, Christ is yours forever. And his yoke is easy. Find rest for your soul in him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for how your word is an oasis in the desert Your word is rest for those who are weary, and I pray for those who are tired this morning. They're tired in their life. They're exhausted. Father, lead them to your son, Jesus Christ, to find the strength to live and to work all of our days unto him. Remind us that we will never run dry when we find ourselves in Christ. Let us rest in him and then work for your glory until you call us home. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in song before we take the Lord's Supper.